Should you stay or should you go? Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, we've got a couple of listeners who are dissatisfied with their financial advisors, and Joe and Big Al weigh in on whether they should ditch the advisors or keep them. Plus, how should you choose investments in your 401k? Is it a good idea to make Roth contributions on behalf of your kids? How do you manage taxes and penalties because of Roth conversions? How do you know when someone in Minnesota is thinking about you? Get in your comments, stories, or actual money questions now. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down, and click Ask Joe and Al on air. Tell us who you are, where you're from, how you found out about the podcast, and what you want to know or share. I'm producer Andy Last, and here they come now in Big Al's imaginary Corvette, Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. We got Robert from Alabama. He's he's riding in. All right. All right. So, currently... I have both a rollover IRA and Roth IRA with one of the larger investment firms. I'm 61, but I have no plans to retire in the immediate future. And, you know, he's willing to be more aggressive rather than conservative. All right, I get that. Yet we agreed to use a retirement age 70 for planning purposes. My advisor has now established an investment plan based upon my hypothetical retirement date and advises against changing anything. This feels very cookie-cutter, akin to set it and forget it. Where's the planning or the adjustments to large market changes? I don't want to day trade or play with the market, but should there be a strategy for changing allocations of stocks and bonds or something other than a fixed date in the future? All right, let me see. So Robert from Alabama is going to retire here at age 70 for planning purposes. Right. 10 years from now. He has no current plans to retire, but just kind of throughout 70. He's like, all right, I'm 61, got some cash, want to retire at 70. All right. And then, um, so my advisor has now established an investment plan based upon this hypothetical retirement date. And then advises against changing anything. So first of all, when did you put the plan together? So is Robert doing this? So he meets with his advisor. They say, okay, Robert, when do you want to retire? I want to retire at age 70. Okay, here's this. Here's your allocation. Let's put this in play. And then a week later, Robert goes, hey, why aren't you changing anything? What the hell are you doing? What am I paying you this money for? I don't want to day trade, but let's at least trade each week. There's movement in the markets. Let's move with them. Or was it like, you know, Five years ago. It, you know, so there's time frames here because, of course, you want to adjust and adapt your plan as you get closer to retirement. Because if I have a 10-year allocation towards my overall goal and then I'm getting out to three or four or five years in, you know, those allocations need to change because the demand for the money is going to be needed shorter. Well, I would say potentially. Because what if you don't even need those assets? Sure. Right? So then it doesn't have to change, right? Because maybe then it's a longer-term allocation for your kids or your grandkids. I, I think the I think the first thing I would say is your retirement date is important in financial planning, but it's it's not the only thing that you consider. It's it's what your need is for the dollars invested. And maybe you've got a good pension plan and good social security and you need very little of your assets, which would mean you could go one of two ways. You could go actually pretty aggressive because you're not going to need to have access so you can sort of ride out the market swings or 
you could go pretty conservative because you don't need a lot of great return. It just depends what your longer-term goals are. Some people want to, if they don't really need their funds, they, they want to grow them for their kids, grandkids, and, and or charity. And some people, it's like, you know what, I don't have, have kids, and I don't really want to take the risk. So, yeah, so I think Robert needs maybe a little bit more education on what the hell the plan is all about. You know what I mean? Because if he's if the advisor's telling him, no, let's stay the course, you know, that can get frustrating to people when they think that there should be movement. Yeah. Right? And so what are they doing? How are they how are they managing the overall assets in a sense? Yeah. Are they rebalancing? Are they tax managing it? Um, you know, what types of trades are they doing? Is the portfolio set up appropriately to begin with? Um, and if you're asking, hey, this kind of seems a little bit cookie cutter, um, I, I don't know. It, 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 it might be very elaborate or it could be very cookie cutter. It could be just kind of an asset allocation that they throw on and, they, you know, you call and ask them something like, oh, who the hell's Robert? Yeah, just hold the course. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. <laughs> you're good. good. Yeah, you're good. Well, and so to continue on that theme, I, I would say we we have seen decades and decades of research that talk specifically about this. Should you make changes in your portfolio based upon market changes? And the data would suggest that that's a fool's game, that if you try to predict the market in the future by getting in and out or by making big allocation changes, you end up worse than than if you had done nothing. So in some cases, holding the course is a better way to go. But I wouldn't say you want to hold and forget. And I think that's what a lot of people think. I mean, you got to figure out what's the right allocation for your goals. You want to kind of stick to that regardless of what the market's doing. But then you want to take advantage of market changes. If uh, stocks go down, your bond portfolio has kind of held the course, then you want to use some of that extra bond money to buy into stocks while they're lower. That helps improve your rate of return. Or if stocks have gone down in your non-retirement portfolio, you want to tax manage, you want to sell those positions, buy something similar so you're still in the market, but now you've created a tax loss on your return. So you're looking at this constantly, but you're not necessarily trading every day. Those that tend to trade all the time tend to not do as well. And that's that's not always. That's not to say you can't do better, but, but the data suggests that if you find the right allocation and rebalance and, and stay the course, you do better longer term. Yeah, I think you just need to identify the philosophy of what you want your investment strategy lo- to look like. And then adhere by, by the, the principles of the philosophy. You know, It's called an investment policy statement. So w- where people kind of stray, I don't care if people are active. If you want to actively trade, make sure that you have a process in place that you continue to actively trade the same way in any type of market conditions. Yeah, that's probably a, a good way to you say it. You know what it. I mean? Because as soon as markets kind of turn, and then your, your gut or emotion comes into play, and you're not following a, a strict discipline, that's where people blow themselves up. Yeah, because the, yeah, the emotions take over, and then you tend to buy at the wrong times. You you buy while the right, market's going you're, you're, up. Yeah, you're not following you're the excited, discipline that right? you, you put into place. And you tend to sell when 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 markets go down, which is the the smart money does just the opposite. They start taking some profits off the table when the market's zooming up, and they buy when it's down. Uh, Frank writes in from San Diego. Hi, Joan L. I think your show is great. Thanks, Frank. I've been listening to the podcast now for a while and have been wanting to send you guys all my questions. I'll start with this one. Is it time to fire my financial advisor and close my brokerage account? Oh, boy. Here we go. It's getting heavy. Right. 
Since August of 2010, I've opened a brokerage account with a large institutional bank. I opened the account with about $6,000, and after the first year, I began adding $200 a month into the account. It has grown to $29,000 as of today. I know the account is small compared to the rest of the accounts the bank has, but I should be treated any differently. I was always skeptical of my advisor's advice since he would always put me in their own bank's mutual funds. However, he seemed to be good, uh, seemed to give me sound advice based on performance of the account. I would try to check in with him once a year, but it was always difficult to schedule an appointment to get 30, 45 minutes of his time. At times, it would take multiple phone calls over a span of a few weeks to get a hold of him. I found this to be very unprofessional and frustrating. As even though I have a small account, I feel that I don't ask for much of his time. Recently, the bank sent me a letter. A little Dear John letter, sounds like here, huh? Dear Frank. Dear Frank letter. Uh, that's good, Andy. <laughs> they are replacing my advisor with a centralized team of investment advisor representatives that are available over the phone. I know my account is small, but I think this is unacceptable and makes me upset over the fact that the bank has now given me less than personal services. What do you think? Should I give these telephone guys a chance, or should I fire them and close my account? Any suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thanks again. Frank from awesome San Diego, California. You got one minute. All right. I would, I would use the, 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 the call center. Check them out. Because you can call all the time. They'll answer your question. They'll be more than you know helpful. to. Uh, I, I would give them a shot. So I would fire them. Wow. Because I did a little math. Based upon what you said, Frank, which is you put in $6,000 about nine years ago, and then you added $200 a month starting at the end of year one, and it came out to about 2.5% rate of return. That's, that's not very good. I think you need to do a little bit better than that. $200 a month? Yeah, so I just... Just checking your math. I just did 6000 up front, and I did 2400 a year for eight years, because that's roughly the same. So yeah, can, I mean, there's probably fat commissions if he's in the old bank's fund, so I would be. have to do a little bit more. But I would not be dis disgruntled of a, of a call center, because those people are, are eager. On 30000 bucks. Well, I think they could probably Here's help the advantage of the call centers. Questions. You'll probably get answered. You'll get questions. answered. You're not going to be playing phone tag yeah, with right, these, right. you know, with your, your... But I don't like the rate of return. I, I, neither do I. Good job, Al. We got Steve. He's calling in from San Diego. Um, and by the way, folks, that's where we're from. That's where we're sitting right now as we speak, in beautiful Southern California, San Diego. Steve writes in, Hi, Joe and Al. You're rocking and rolling with question and answer session. Really great to hear these each week. Thanks, Steve. Keep writing in, and you'll, you'll, we'll keep on a rocking and a rolling. That's right. All right, so Steve, he wants to ask, I have a 401k at work that has 30 funds in the plan. I decided, until now, I've directed 100% of my contributions into an aggressive growth fund, uh, which, by the numbers, has been the best performing fund in the group. But I wonder, what about diversification within this plan? What about taking the top 10 performers and putting 10% of the contribution in each? Or will that dilute performance? In fact, how do you decide which funds to choose? If past performance is no guarantee of future results, should you disregard the numbers? I know I can't give advice. I'm just interested in your perspective. Thank you for your thoughts. Yeah, it's a cool question, Steve. Yeah, I like sure. that. It's um, interesting way of thinking. 
Right. Probably the opposite of what you should do. <laughs> so what, what should he do? Well, I like the fact that he's putting 100% of his contributions in the most aggressive fund. But don't look at it in regards to rate of return. You have to take a little bit deeper dive because, I mean, if I just look at the past 10 years of rates of return, you know, there could be conservative asset classes that have outperformed very aggressive asset classes. Sure. You know, like a bond fund could outperform a small value merging markets fund, right, over a short period of time. So don't you can't necessarily look at past performance. You have to look at the characteristics of the stocks or the securities that you're purchasing, all right? So if I'm just saying fund A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or whatever, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 through 10, and pick the top 10 performers, that's not a really good way to do it, right? I like the idea, but it probably will blow up on you because what are you doing? You're buying yesterday's winners today. Yeah, well, the price so is high. Did you get that, Andy? That was good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Right? So look at the characteristics. You too could write a book. I, I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to. Yes. I think I've heard that before. Right? But you're looking at asset classes. So you want a volatile asset class that you're putting money into on a monthly basis, right? Because it's going to go up and down. It's called dollar cost averaging. You want that thing to be pretty hot, right? But then, yes, diversify your pool of money that you have, right? So once each year, then diversify out. So you want some stocks, you want some bonds, you want some large, you want some small, you want some international, you want some emerging markets, things like that. That's how you want to gauge it, not necessarily based on the return. Because U.S. large cap growth has really done very well over the last 10 years. And if you say, you know what, that's the one I want to go into, because you're buying really high. Right, so it might even make sense. I've seen people do the exact opposite. Look at the worst ten performing funds and put ten percent into each of those. Yeah, right. And let's say who wins. Why don't we do that, Steve? Let's let's risk your money. <laughs> I guess we'll do it on paper. <laughs> let's risk your money and let's do it that way. Well, so and I agree with everything you said. And and so, but this is confusing to people, which is is past performance is no guarantee of future results, but. You have to look at past performance to have some kind of indication. So here, here's the way I would say it, is certain asset classes over a very long period of time, 20, 30, 40, 100 years, right, have certain characteristics. And so, but when you're looking at last year, or two years ago, or three years ago, that's where past performance can get into, into, into trouble, because certain asset classes or certain funds might have done well, and there's really no guarantee that that will do that in the future. So when you hear that statement, it's not that you want to throw out all past histories. It's just that we know, based upon 100 years of, of stock market experience, that small companies and value companies outperform large companies and, and growth companies. Have outperformed. Have. Not will. Yeah. yeah. Well, did. I'll say did. did. Yes. Yeah, did. did. You're right. There's no guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Thank you. Anyway, um, and so that what, what that means is that if you invest more in, in small companies and value companies, you have a higher probability of long-term success. It has absolutely no correlation on what's going to happen next year or five years or even 10 years from now. Yeah, because value's gotten smoked. And so, and Growth has outperformed value right. and, and so over an, the last, and, let's and, say, 10 years. And aggressive uh, allocation will be probably mostly stocks, and maybe you've got some international, maybe you've got some emerging markets, maybe you've got some small in value. Over the long term, that is will most like the highest probability of being the best performer. 
no guarantee of that. Now, as you get closer to retirement, you probably want to take some risk off the table because you're going to start needing to withdraw those funds. And if the market spikes down at the same time you're wanting to draw that money, you're not in a, in a great position. And I would say this, diversification compared to an aggressive stock fund is not going to get you a better return. It just gives you a more steady return. It's going to dilute the return. It's going to dilute. It's going to, you're going to have a For less, sure. So you're right on, return. Steve. Yeah. I mean, if you start breaking that thing out, you got lucky. Right, so you picked the absolute best fund over the last, let's say, ten years or whatever that is that that has performed the best, um, and then now you're thinking, hey, how do I break this thing up? Because do I want to take some chips off the table? But do I want to dilute my return? Well, you're going to have to, but don't look at the past performance. Look at asset class. Look at what you're actually invested in to help you make those decisions. So is it really worth it to hire a financial advisor? What value do they actually provide? And what do you need to know before you hire one? Click the link in the episode description in your podcast app to go to the show notes and get answers to those questions. There you can also find out more about Joe and Big Al's investing philosophy by downloading their newly updated white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience. Learn the drivers of expected returns, why chasing past performance is a mistake, and how to let the markets work for you. Now let's get back to your money questions. This next batch is, of course, about Roth IRAs because it would not be YMYW without some Roth talk. Click Ask Joe and Al on air in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to send in your money questions, Roth-related or not. We got Nancy from San Diego. I really enjoy your podcast. I laugh and learn. Or I learn and laugh. Let's see that dyslexic yeah. kind of comes in sometimes. It does. And um, my two children, age... Our age, 24. <laughs> I got this, Al. All right. Should have had that you know, what vodka was, before we started. Before Andy came on the show, I had to do all the correcting. Now it's I just sit back and she corrects you. It's great. <laughs> I'm a lot better at reading, though. I know you are. You have <laughs> you've improved. You, sir. you know, you. when you weren't here, I actually read the questions. Yeah, it made sense. That's why when you read the questions, ratings go down. <laughs> go ahead, then. <laughs> uh, That's false. I, I, uh, <laughs> we had our best ratings when, I know, you, when you weren't here. I know. Exactly. That's why I'm retiring. <laughs> this is my last show. It's going to be the Alan Andy show. Uh, my two children are... Age, so she, it should say ages, but whatever. They are aged. 24 and <laughs> 26. I've been making a Roth IRA contribution each year for them since they were 16-year-old high school lifeguards. They know it's happening since the money has to run through their personal bank accounts. So they're aware of it. They are. Oh, okay, that's where we're going. Uh, Nancy, that's, they don't, like, they're writing their own check to the custodian. They don't necessarily need to do that. The parent can write the check to the custodian. Yeah, but it's in their it's in their name, so they they're aware that this no, money's going into their account with their name on it. I understand. Uh, they haven't expressed an interest in what I've been doing. They can contribute enough to obtain the match at their jobs, but are low income earners at this point. They would find it very difficult to make IRA contributions. I've been viewing this as a wealth transfer while I'm still alive. I'm not putting my retirement savings at risk other than one of them waking up and insisting on taking control and buy a Corvette. Is there a downside to what I've been doing? Thank you. So Nancy is a wonderful woman. What has Nancy got against Corvettes? 
well, she wants to make sure the money that she put into the Roth as used for retirement, is not for not Corvettes. For, <laughs> did you know that Big Al has a Corvette? I did not. I do not. I would like one. <laughs> he drives around with like T tops. <laughs> He puts his collar up with some sunglasses. A, <laughs> just drives Over his readers. Yes, drives around my San readers. Diego. I have my readers on so I can read the dash. He's got <laughs> a- aviator sunglasses. Oh, yeah, I do have yeah. those. Drives down the strip. So um, most of that's false, except for the aviator sunglasses. <laughs> so, Nancy, um, what you're doing is awesome because what you're, you're providing your kids a compound tax-free uh, pot of money when they turn... 60 or uh, 59 and a half. Um, can they take the money, pull it out of the Roth, and spend it on a Corvette? Absolutely. It's in their name. It's their money. Um, you're just gifting the contributions to them. So that's the downside. If you trust your kids, right, and say, you know, don't touch this, then, you know, I think it's awesome because, I mean, Al, do the math here. So she's been doing this in 16. And so let's say from 16 to 26, on average, let's say the contributions have been um, 4000 bucks. Okay. All right. So $4,000 a year for the last 10 years. Okay. What kind of interest rate? 7%. 7%. Mostly in the market. Okay. Okay. So that in 10 years is 59000 All right. So now they have 59000 So these 26, 36, 45, let's go on 35 years out, 56000 Let's say Nancy does not put another dime in this Roth IRA. So go 30 years out at 7%. So we got 59000 She stops funding. Yep. But we go 30 years. Yep. At 7%. Yep. We got four hundred fifty grand. So $450,000 tax-free for per the kid. kids. Per kid. Right. So, I mean, that's awesome. If you continue to fund it, right, now that number is going to continue to compound, go up and go up and go up, and then, you know, it's, it's really cool stuff. I, so I agree with that, and I got a tip for you, which is this. And since you're contributing each year, it's very easy. Tell them this is for your retirement, not to be touched. And if they do touch it, you're not going to contribute anymore. Right. And then you'll never get anything from me again. And that's it. Very bad things will happen. <laughs> Karma. <laughs> bad juju will happen. Big Al will come over with his Corvette and scold them, <laughs> paddle them. I'm going to have to buy a Corvette so I can follow up on that problem. say, yeah, this is what I did, kids. I bought a Corvette. <laughs> I bought a Corvette. Too. You don't want to turn out to be like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, I'll, I'll hold that thought. Nancy, great job, though. Um, but, yeah, you do have that risk. We got Joe from Wisconsin. He writes in. Um, Again. Second question, huh? All right. Hello, Andy and guys. Okay, well, I guess now Andy's a lead. Um, well, she she is the one that responds to the emails. You and I just answer them. Oh. Well, maybe you should answer this, Andy. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and then it, we, we could respond to the emails, and then we'd be first billing. Yes. As far as finding your podcast. Oh, yeah, we were kind of ranting about this. You asked him to write you back and tell you. He's oh. doing that. I totally forgot about that. I was probably a little excited yeah. about doing the podcast. Okay, I had searched for relatable to me podcast uh, with advice about. So, all right, so let me let me set this thing up. Now I'm under. Now I'm getting it. <laughs> so Joe from Wisconsin, he like writes in a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. answered his question. It was very right. We were like dialed in, and I'm, apparently we killed it. Well, that's why we got second billing. 
Yes. And guys. And then I was like, okay, well, how the hell does Joe from Wisconsin find us? And we started talking about people finding us on the podcast because mm-hmm. we're getting all sorts of different people that we've never heard There's, from before. And they're telling us, we just found your yeah, podcast. Yes, yes, yeah. hey, I just found your and podcast. And that's what Joe said. Last week. And, hey, and I was like, well, you just found this thing. We've been doing this for like 15 years. What the hell? Where have you been? Now it's all coming back, right? So yeah. this is. Okay, nice. Remember the that. conversation? I do. I do. So now Joe writes back. And he goes, as far as finding your podcast, I had searched for a relatable to me podcast uh, with advice about investing in retirement. I think the subject of the podcast was fiduciary, and I was hooked. So huh. far. So, so, so far. So far. That's a qualified. <laughs> Whatever, Joe. It's all downhill from here. I know. It's like, other po- <laughs> so far, so good. Until <laughs> next week, this thing sucks. No, I'll read the next sentence. Other financial podcasts don't hold a candle. To your money or wealth. Wow. Thank you, Joe from Wisconsin. Yeah. Hold a candle. Where did that phrase come from? Hold a candle. Uh, Did you want me to look it up? That sounds like an old Midwest. Right? Don't hold a candle. Because when you used to go, you know, you have to hold a candle candle to go out to the, you know? To the... uh, the, the outhouse. <laughs> the John. Apprentices used to be expected to hold candles so that more experienced workmen were able to see what they were doing. Son unable to do that would be of low status indeed. Mm. First used in 1641, though I be not worthy to hold the candle to Aristotle. Ah, okay. All right. There you go. Okay. Um, so he's got a follow-up on his question regarding turning 65 in January and having enough income to cover a $14,000 um, Roth IRA for myself and spouse for the next year. So um, he's got a gross paycheck of $3,000, 403B contribution of $500, 401K Roth after-tax contributions, $500. No, nope. this is deferred compensation option for state of Wisconsin workers. Employee pension contribution, 200 can I assume this amount does not have an effect on the Roth uh, contribution? So if he's got three thousand of income minus five hundred minus five hundred, that equals two thousand times seven equals fourteen thousand, which will mean seven paychecks. Correct? Yeah, because his first question was how much do I have? How long or how much do I have to earn to put in fourteen thousand, which is the max? And so I would say the calculation is correct. I'm not sure I agree with the employee pension contribution because you wrote the word employee. That sounds like that's coming out of your pay. So you might have to subtract the $200 as well. But that's the right idea. The right idea is your gross pay minus your pension contributions. You, you end up with a net number before any other state and federal withholdings, but you end up with a net number, and that's what counts as earned income to do a Roth contribution. So that the concept is correct. Uh, new question. Since I'll only have $14,000 in income next year, plus my pension, plus an annuity, old pension, and my spouse's pension, uh, and no Social Security yet, is this a good time to convert 401k uh, IRAs to Roths? Any well, other foreseen problems? I don't know. I mean, if you only have $14,000 of income, I would like to know. Like, He's like, I only have $14,000 of income, plus my pension, plus an old pension, plus my wife's pension, <laughs> plus my wife's Social Security, plus she's going to do part-time work. Yeah, so we need to know a little more, but I, I, would, I would say based upon what we know or don't know, Chances are your that your income will be higher 
at 70 and a half, right? Because Social Security, assuming that's when you take it, will kick in. Your required minimum distributions, I guess, will kick in. So chances are your income will be higher at that age. You're 65 now, so there's five years of perhaps lower income. So maybe, but we can't really answer that without knowing these figures. Right. I have no idea what your pensions are. I mean, he's, it looks like he works for the state of Wisconsin. Um, most state plans are somewhat rich. Yeah, could you know, be. Where and so you've got he's got Joe's got a pension. His spouse has a pension. Yeah. Social Security is coming. So the two things that are coming later is Social Security and required minimum distribution. Mm-hmm. So all things being equal, his income, their income, joint income will be higher at age seventy and a half. So I, I so chances are your income is lower. Roth conversions might make sense, but it really depends upon what bracket you're in. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Just kind of take a look and say, all right. Well, what? Yeah. Well, what bracket? How, how much is all of this stuff? Yeah. It's it's really hard to <laughs> because it sounds like he doesn't need. I mean, l- like you said, Alan, it's like all things held equal. If he doesn't need the four hundred one k dollars, then yeah, he will be in a higher tax bracket once he turns seventy and a half because the social security will kick in. Yeah. So I mean, I, so we don't have enough information, but I would say a general answer for this fact pattern. Is your you, you, this is a good time to do Roth conversions because your income is lower now than it will be in the future. Tax rates are all time lows. They're going and back up. They're in, going back you know, up. So you, so you have two reasons to do Roth conversions right now based yeah. upon what we know. But then I know the new question is going to be um, how much, and then I would, you know, then that's a, a, a we, totally another bag of send us you know, your numbers, Joe. Worms. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You, you would just probably maybe. I guess on the back of the envelope, maybe convert to the top of your own bracket. Yeah, that would be something you could do. That's some easy, simple that you could do on your own. Right. All right, Joe. Thank you for telling us how you found us. But you typed in the word fiduciary. Yeah, which is interesting because I don't think there's the word fiduciary in any of our podcasts. Because Alan doesn't act like a fiduciary 100% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> Especially on the weekends. Now, now that I have my reader glasses, I'm going to be much better. You're going to look like a fiduciary at least. I (laughs) definitely look like a fiduciary. (laughs) My nose is someone's thinking about me. My name's Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner with Alan Klopine. I'm just sitting here. I don't don't really care if your nose is itching. Oh, really? The show must go on. (laughs) Have you heard that? When your nose itches, someone's thinking about you? No, I've never heard that. No, that's a Minnesota. I've never heard that either. Really? I'm the only one. Yeah. Oh, someone's thinking hard about me. Some, <laughs> someone's got a little crush. Wow. Maybe it's Kathy from Massachusetts. <laughs> it could be. Kathy writes in, I have a question about out-of-pocket expenses to pay for Roth conversion. Uh, so Kathy, she converted uh, $10,000 from traditional 401k to Roth at the end of year last year, and it pushed my tax bracket up. Since there wasn't any additional withholding from my paycheck throughout the year, I'm a W-2 employee, so I ended um, I ended up having to pay tax penalty due to insufficient withholdings caused by Roth conversion. This year, I haven't done Roth conversion, but I'm considering it. How to manage the tax liability if decide to convert? Certainly don't want it happens again like last year. Uh, I wish I had a Boston accent. <laughs> <laughs> how she's writing this is, might be in like in a yeah right you know, or Massachusetts accent yeah um, I heard someone can write up a check sent to IRS to add to the withholding but I'm a W two and don't pay tax quarterly thank you both 
Love your show. Well, thank you, Kathy, and love your question. That is sweet. Very common question. So Kathy does a conversion, right? She does her taxes, and the IRS is saying, Kathy, you didn't withhold enough. Yeah. You owe a penalty. You owe taxes and penalty. Yeah, what the hell? So what does she do, Alan? Well, there's a couple things, Kathy, you can do. Uh, one is just increase your withholding if in anticipation of a Roth conversion so you have enough withholding in. And by the way, as long as you pay in 100% in withholding of last year's tax, you're not going to be penalized. Unless your income's over 150000 then it's 110%. So in other words, if your federal taxes last year were $10,000 with the Roth conversion, you have to make sure you have at least $10,000 withheld this year right? And then even if you owe taxes, you won't be penalized. So that's kind of, they call that the safe harbor rule. Or if, if, as long as you pay in 90% of this year's tax. But here's what a lot of people don't realize that our W-2 employees is there's a second way to pay, and that's quarterly with quarterly estimated payments. It's a, it's a 1040 ES estimated payment. That's, it's, a, it's a little voucher that you print out fill out and send your payment with How the hell is she going to get a 1040ES voucher? From the IRS website, irs.gov, type in 1040ES, and it will pop right up. So what, she just fills out her own voucher? Yeah. And why does it sound like I'm saying like a bird? It did sound. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> a vulture. Bo- a vulture. Bo- a bo- well, the IRS, it's kind of the same well, thing. Well, I, it's not very hard. It's your name. Address, social security so you number. feel because the ones that I get, my CPA does for me. Well, yeah, I'm, if you don't, if I'm saying if you don't have a CPA, if you have a CPA, you can have them do it for you. But so Kathy then is going to have to figure out what her quarterly payments are. Um, so I'm presuming that she'll do something similar, which is is at the end of the year. So the best way to do this is to increase your withholding during the year in anticipation. But if you don't do that, then you make an estimated payment on the 1040 ES, as long as you do that by January 15th. Um, but because, the, I, because that estimated payment was made in the fourth quarter, you're going to have to fill out the Form 2210, the, okay. the penalty. I mean, this, but How about if she does this? So she's going to do a conversion today, 10000 bucks, right? So she's W-2 employee. She's already withheld X. So for the next month and a half, two months, right, of paychecks, yeah. she could up her withholdings. Yeah, that's the smartest way to do it. Or can't she just go to irs.gov and say, I want to make a payment? Of course. Then that's that's the same thing as the 1040 ES. Yeah, but she doesn't have to fill out all these crazy forms in the 1022s and the 24 ES. The, the 2210, the- absolutely, because the... The I, ro- I don't. The ro- well, that's that's because you don't care if you pay penalties. <laughs> I do. If I pay one cent of penalty, I absolutely go ballistic. Now, here's the, here's the rule: is this is if when you do a Roth conversion, the IRS presumes it was evenly throughout the year, so you had to make twenty five percent of that payment in April, twenty five percent in June, twenty five percent September, twenty five percent January. So if you make that payment in the fourth quarter. Then you have to fill out the Form 2210, which is the annualization method. This is starting to sound complicated because it is complicated. (laughs) So you have to show your income at different points of the year so that you're not penalized. The the better way to do it is increase your withholding because withholding is considered evenly withheld throughout the year. And then you don't have to worry about this. So if I understand you correctly, is that she does a conversion of $10,000 December 31st. Right. So... 
her income spiked right. only in the month of December. Yes. So that fourth quarter quarterly, she can't pay it that way because the IRS is saying, you know what, that ten thousand dollars came out evenly throughout the year. So you with you under withheld the first, second, and third that, quarter. That's right. And but you fill out that form twenty two ten to explain that's not true. Right. So the twenty two ten just explains, hey IRS, I did a conversion. Ten, uh, you know, at yeah. the fourth quarter. Because I, so I only owe taxes in the fourth quarter. Got it. That's what that's all about. All right. Clear as mud. Yep. Um, but I hope, Kathy, this does not discourage you from doing the right planning. Because sometimes it does get complicated. And so people will take maybe the easier road versus doing the right thing for them and their family because they have to fill out a couple of extra forms. Also, remember that the penalty is based upon a 3% annual interest rate, which is pretty low. So it's actually pretty cheap use of money. If you just can't get enough of Roth Talk, click the link in the episode description in your podcast app and get answers to your top Roth conversion questions. Learn about the mega backdoor Roth strategy and listen to Jonathan Clements, formerly of The Wall Street Journal, explain why this might be the time to do a Roth conversion. If you're new to all this Roth stuff, start with the basics. Find out exactly how you can get 100% tax-free growth on your investments. Download the free Roth IRA basics guide from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Click the link in the episode description in your podcast app to get access to all these free resources and to send in your money questions, compliments, complaints, stories, or comments like this one. So David, um, he writes in, this is a couple weeks ago. I've been kind of sitting on this here, Al. Okay. YMYWT. Love the show. Starts out good. All right. Per comment that Joe made on a recent podcast, and another time on a separate podcast as well, regarding some of his clients not wanting to give up their ACA subsidies since they have sizable portfolios but still want to stay under the ACA subsidy limits. I disagree with Joe's comments. Given the ridiculously high premium costs that we need to take on if we don't have subsidies, everyone should manage their portfolio, if possible, to ensure they stay under the ACA subsidy limits. Our government wastes so much money in other areas. It would be great if everyone received subsidies. While asset allocation and income limits for ACA subsidies aren't, shouldn't be directly related, they should be considered in conjunction with one another. For example, if a couple needs to pay $1,500 a month for a non-subsidy ACA plan, ACA folks is the... Affordable Care Act, um, or $300 a month for the same plan being subsidized, this is a huge difference in annual cost that a couple would need to absorb while on a fixed income. They need to come up with an additional net $14,400 annually to cover the premiums alone. If a couple could allocate some of their equity allocation toward a lower yielding asset, such as they stay under the income limits and alternatively generate unrealized capital gains instead... They should absolutely do it. For example, investing in Berkshire Hathaway has no dividend. Please don't judge about striving for ACA subsidies unless you actually are in the shoes, as I have been, there and is not fun. All right, David. What do you say about that, Joe? Rebuttal? Got your rebuttal? Yes, because people that are on a non-subsidy plan are paying, or let's say a, a subsidy plan paying three hundred dollars a month, they probably are broke, 
and don't have millions in the bank. That's my only point. Yeah, but his comment is is valid. Cr- is correct. Of course, completely valid. I mean, sure, if you're paying fourteen thousand four hundred bucks versus I don't know, what is that? Few a few thousand bucks? Yes, I think I'm not an idiot. Well, maybe I am. I don't know. I think David thinks I'm an idiot. Well, I'll, I'll say it this way, and at least the way I look at it. I don't necessarily have to agree or disagree with the, the subsidy. It, it's, it, just, it is what it, it is. It is. It's there. And so you have the opportunity to arrange your affairs to get the subsidy. Why not? Now, do I, me personally, do I think it, it was a good, uh, a, a good program? I would say no, because you have what we've seen is people with a lot of money that really can't afford health insurance arrange their affairs not to. But that is the law. But I, I'm not even – my gripe is not even that, Al. It's like they're, they're, they're tripping over dollars to pick up pennies. Let's say David's got a couple million dollars in a 401k plan, Right. And so he's in a 0% tax bracket. He's got a non-qualified account that he's managing to keep him in the subsidy, but he's not taking any distributions from his retirement account to convert into a Roth, and he's setting himself up in a time bomb because he's so concerned about the subsidies that he's neglecting future planning. This other call we got was like, I'm going to fire. I'm firing. (laughs) So I want to get on my subsidies. I want to be rich, but I don't want to pay anything. I mean, I get it. That's how people get rich sometimes. So, David, I'm with you, but I don't want you to neglect other things and other planning opportunities in hindsight. All right. uh, Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, Andy, wonderful job today. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Hey, Alan, great job. Same with you. Thank you very much. We'll see you guys next week. Show's got your money well. White Paper Freaks, The Old Days of the YMYW Radio Show, and Larry Swedro's book, Black Swan, are in the derails at the end of this episode, so stick around if you're into that sort of thing. By the way, did you know that YMYW isn't just on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all that? We're also on Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, and tons more. Subscribe on any or all of them. And hey, if you get any value at all out of this show, sharing it via email or on social media is the single best way you can say thanks to Joe and Big Al. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Sit down for a free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner from Pure, either in person or via web meeting, and find out if your financial plan is too cookie-cutter, set, and forget. Click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Social Security Handbook. It's a lot different than a guide because a guide is only four pages where a handbook is probably 10. At least. It might, it might be more than that. It might be more like 20. What's a, what's the difference between a guide and a handbook? You I, I would say a guide is sort of like a, a thing that you read and you try to, it's like an article in a, in a sense. A handbook is probably going to be worksheets like and fill out and yeah. No, no trust me. Don't false advertise because <laughs> well, there's no worksheets in this handbook. Oh, well, you asked me what I thought it was. I have no idea. <laughs> But that, when I think about it, it's hand, good that you both know the content so well. When I, when I think about, I put it together. I mean, I I, I remember, but I don't. There's, I don't, no, there's I don't no worksheets. Put a, I don't put a, a name handbook. on it. I don't put like, well, this is a guide and this is a handbook. I'm like, well, here, this is. You asked me to put some stuff together for Social Security. 
Anyway, whatever it is, it's really good. Yeah, it's right. fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if you're concerned about Social Security, <laughs> this handbook's for you. <laughs> this could be something you could download and print, put by your nightstand, read a little bit each night. <laughs> you're safe. Um, <laughs> or you're safe. <laughs> and there's some freaks out there, Alan. I'm telling you. So we talk about this. So someone's going to download the Social Security handbook and then download another 400 things on our website. It's available. They They're like, they, it's it's like catnip for some of these people. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just get, they can't get enough of the content well, that it, we just put out there. Yeah, it's like uh, they they read it at night before bed, so they need 365 white papers. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> they, they, they don't I need mean, sleeping pills. I mean, they, how they, many <laughs> times do they have to go to Kinkos to get some more paper for their printer? <laughs> Oh, boy. You Um, know what I do is I download white papers, and then they sit on my desktop for years, and I never crack them open. But I feel like I got something free. Yes, you got something. And just in case you might need it. Just, hey, you never know. Yeah, do you have that Social Security guide printed by your nightstand? I do. Is that something you read? Right next to his emergency fund. Yeah. Oh, that's where your emergency fund is, yes. in your piggy bank? Right yeah, it's, it's safe. Night- and then I have my safe. white papers in the safe. <laughs> so, Got it. Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, you can binge watch every episode, seasons one through five on demand, on demand at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. On d- demand. D- demand. <laughs> wow, you are getting punchy at the end of the show, aren't you? A little it's bit. two hours of nonstop talking. Yes. It sort of gets to us, Andy, after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when we used to do a three-hour show? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. Then we did another hour on Sunday. Yeah, right. Three hours on Saturday. Saturday one on Sunday. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm surprised you guys could still stand each other after that. Oh, we, we could. That's, built, what, that's just why built we... the bond larger <laughs> and broader and bigger. That's why we went down to one show. <laughs> and I said, we're going to do one show. And if we go to more than one market, we're using the same show. I'm not going to record a show from here, there, and everywhere. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. that's hard. Seven days a week for a while we worked. Yeah. For you, years. You miss those days? No. <laughs> uh-uh. Well, what do you do on the weekend? I, I do a lot of soul searching now. Soul searching. <laughs> I relax. What have you discovered from uh, your soul searching? Yes. I, I, I found out that Frank had a question for us here. Oh, okay. Smart money. You like that phrase coined by Alan Clayton? I think you've been reading some Larry Swedro books or something. <laughs> yeah, I read Black Swan. That's quite a book. Oh, uh, Which one? It's called Black Swan. Yeah, I know. He's got two of them. Oh, I don't know. The most recent one? First one. Oh, the first one. Yeah. When He, he didn't get any alternatives on that one. Uh, I don't remember because I didn't finish it. No. It's it like it's like thirty pages. No, it's, it's a pretty, not. It's a pretty it's, thin book. It's not that thin, and it's very technical. 